is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Roberto Brocampo, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Hello, Alicino, or something like that. Ugh, that was awful. We'll, give you, we'll <laughs> maybe do better next time. Uh, so this week's episode, we are going to share with you The Motley Fool's seven don'ts for successful investing over the long haul. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Well, in the past, bro, we've brought our dear listeners stories of the lives of famous investors like Jack Bogle, John Templeton, and others. So today, I'm going to bring you the life, so far, of another famously successful investor. So if I say the name Robert Smith, chances are that name doesn't ring a bell. Or if you're a Gen Xer like Rick, then yeah, the name does ring a bell. But no, I'm not here to talk about the lead singer of The Cure. Uh, Otherwise, Robert Smith is a generic name that doesn't likely make you think of someone famous, which is too bad because Robert F. Smith is someone worth knowing. And today, I'm going to give you a book report, essentially, on Robert Smith, the successful investor, philanthropist, and up until recently, quietly one of the richest men in the world and the richest African-American. Yes, Richer than Oprah, someone I know you've heard of. All right, here we go. I pulled most of my information from articles in the New York Times and Washington Post. Funny enough, both of them were titled, both of the articles were titled, Who is Robert Smith? And then also a bunch of articles from Forbes.com. Robert Frederick Smith was born in December of 1962 and raised in Denver, Colorado. He was the son of two high school principals, and according to the Washington Post, his father instilled in him a love of music and his mother a duty toward philanthropy and social justice. Everybody was hardworking. His mother would send a $25 check to the United Negro College Fund every month, and she had Smith on her hip during the famous March on Washington where his widow bitty baby ears heard Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. So Smith became interested in computers at a young age, as he put it, I got hooked on technology, Smith said. The excitement of figuring a complex problem out creates a eureka moment. It's one of the best moments in life. So he applied for an internship at Bell Labs while in high school. But because the internship was for college students, he was told he was too young. So Smith called every Monday for five months and eventually got the position despite his age. He went to college at Cornell studying chemical engineering, then took a job at Kraft Foods, where he was focused on, fun fact, coffee machine technology, and he actually won two patents for a stainless steel filter and another for a brewing process that makes crema, the layer of foam, on top of espresso. He also got an MBA from Columbia. What did you guys do before you were like 24 years old? I drank a lot of coffee. Does that count? In 1994, he joined Goldman Sachs in their mergers and acquisitions department, first in New York, and then he moved on to specialize in tech in Silicon Valley, advising companies such as Apple, Hewlett-Packard, and Microsoft. Not bad timing. After five years at Goldman Sachs, Robert founded Vista Equity Partners in 2000, along with co-founder Brian Sheff, and he's been there ever since. So, what does Vista Equity Partners do? Well, I understand very little about what equity people do, venture capital, all of that. 
But I'll just read to you from their site. According to their website, Vista invests in enterprise software, data, and technology companies through private equity, permanent capital, credit, and public equity investment strategies. So what does that mean? I don't really know for sure, but let's talk about it at least a little bit. Early on, Smith saw the immense opportunity in software as service companies, which Wall Street wasn't quite yet paying attention to. I mean, tech is cool, but SaaS? Ugh, yawn, except that they make a ton of money and have fantastic margins. So Smith's idea was that you don't take a lousy company and slash and burn, you take a good company and make it better by offering guidance, advice, best practices, etc. So drawing on his background as an engineer and a Goldman vet, Smith wrote user manuals for running enterprise software companies. They cover efficiency, but also incorporate cost-cutting measures, fee-generating ideas. They eventually named them Vista's Best Practices. And this playbook is put to work in the companies they invest in and acquire. As Forbes explains, in isolation, many of the playbook's best practices seem mundane. But software companies are often rife with eccentricities and legacy processes endemic to startup culture. We don't know anything about that, do we, gentlemen? (laughs) Under Mr. Smith's management, Vista established a remarkable track record by never losing money on a leveraged buyout and regularly returning investors 30% or more on an annualized basis. By the time he was 35, Smith had earned his first million, and as he told the Washington Post, uh, less than 20 years later, his first billion. As of 2019, Vista has over $46 billion in cumulative capital commitments, owns over 50 software companies for a total of 60,000 employees worldwide, and it makes it the fourth largest enterprise software company after Microsoft, Oracle, and SAP. I uh, just cut and paste that out of Wikipedia, so who knows how true it is, but it's probably in the ballpark, right? So much success. No, no. Rose just shaking his head now. So much success, but Smith largely shunned the spotlight. He was so reclusive, in fact, that his company didn't even have his photo on the website for fear that seeing a black man at the helm might deter people. And as I mentioned earlier, if you Google Robert Smith, anything written before 2016 is either about the cure or is titled some variation of who is this guy? But all that changed a few years ago. As he said in an interview, when I look at the folks that inspired me growing up, people like Frederick Douglass, they had to stand up and take positions in public in order to make a difference. Part of the responsibility I have because of the opportunities I've been granted is to take leadership positions and help expand access for others. So I think only his accountant and maybe his like personal assistant could give an exhaustive list of all of his philanthropic efforts. Um, but knowing what I told you about his family, it probably won't surprise you that his philanthropy is usually focused around education, social and economic equality, and music. So famously, in 2019, while giving a commencement speech at Morehouse College, Smith surprised that year's graduates by announcing he would pay off all of their student loan debt. Do you remember this? We mentioned it on the podcast. It was part. It was a wub yeah. from 2019. So he has also served as chairman of Carnegie Hall and the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization. He founded a summer camp in Colorado for 5,000 inner city kids every year, and it's focused on music. And he gave $50 million to Cornell to help improve the racial and gender diversity in their engineering department. Smith wants computers and software to become for African Americans what the steel mills and auto plants were for a generation of blacks in the early 20th century. Creating jobs and technology, Smith says, is the fastest way to create wealth today. 
Lately, Robert Smith has been busy circulating a call to action to the nation's largest corporations and even individuals, and Forbes describes it as a private sector solution to reparations. Bro, have you seen this in the Washington Post or heard about this? I don't believe I have. Exactly, right? That's what we're doing. We're going to talk about it here a little bit. So you can read his thoughts directly in a July Washington Post op-ed titled, How to Turn Our Collective Outrage into Action. But to summarize, I haven't actually read this plan that he has written up. So I'm trying to cobble it together from a Forbes article and the op-ed and whatever. So if I get something wrong, I apologize. He writes that nowhere in this op-ed, he writes that nowhere is structural racism more apparent than in corporate America. And he calls it the 2% solution, saying that large corporations should use 2% of their annual net income for the next decade to empower minority communities. He suggests they invest it directly into banking, telecom, technology, education, and healthcare infrastructure to benefit Black communities. By doing so, he says, it could begin to reverse corporate America's history of structural racism. So here's one problem to solve. We've all heard about food deserts, communities where there isn't a grocery store or healthy food to be found. Um, You're basically stuck eating from fast food restaurants and convenience stores. And Smith points out that these food deserts are also banking deserts and that 70% of African-American communities don't have a single bank branch. And only 21 banks in the U.S. are run by African-Americans. So here's a quote I pulled. Through his plan, Smith envisions the nation's banking sector could, over the next 10 years, provide billions of dollars of capital to Black-owned banks and community development banks with some of the funds used to digitize these lenders. His plan calls for the telecom and tech sectors to provide money to help prepare 180,000 students at America's historically black colleges for the jobs of the future and to digitize 1 million minority small businesses. So many companies, including The Motley Fool, are saying Black Lives Matter and that they support economic equality, diversity, and inclusion. And he's essentially saying... Nice Instagram post. Now put your money where your mouth is. And so as he writes in his op-ed for the post, in finance, we speak of, quote, permanent capital, referring to investments that create long-term compounding returns. This is the approach that should guide companies in making practical, tangible, and scalable commitments. In closing, even the first self-made Wall Street billionaire experiences racism on a personal level far too often in his life. He told Forbes about a time he was out for a professional dinner with a bunch of Wall Street types. You can immediately picture it as soon as I said that. Uh, Smith offered to pay, but a senior banker at the table refused to let him and chortled, their word, not mine, I can't have a black man buy me dinner. Holy cow, you're kidding me. (laughs) Oh, and I'll quote another story. As he told the Washington Post, At least three to seven times a year, he says he is stopped by police as he drives himself to the airport in Texas. He lives in Houston, I believe. Or no, Austin, maybe. The officers run his tags and check his license. And he's told he was speeding or changing lanes without signaling. This is three to seven times a year. And the officers sent him off, often without a ticket. As he says, you shouldn't have to be fearful for your life. You should be able to drive to the airport and not be stopped three to seven times a year. But as the Washington Post writes... Smith never worries about missing his flight. His private plane won't leave without him. And that, bro, <laughs> is what's up. Don't, don't, don't let's start. This is the worst part. We're told a lot of don'ts in life. Don't count your chickens till they've hatched. Don't drink and drive. Don't go swimming until an hour after you've eaten. Well, you likely also heard some don'ts about investing. And like those other don'ts, some are more important than others. To make sure our audience knows the most important, we at The Motley Fool recently designated the seven don'ts about investing. 
that we think everyone should heed. And here to help us explain them is Amanda Kish, who is both a CFP and a CFA, the former advisor for the Fool's Champion Fund Service, a former financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. And now she's embarked on a new role. Welcome, Amanda, and tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Sure. Thank you so very much. I'm glad to be here today. Um, so I am the financial planning team lead on the member services team. So a lot of my efforts are directed towards uh, really bringing that financial planning perspective to everything that we do and the services that we offer here at The Fool. So uh, in the coming months and quarters, members will begin to see a little bit more of that uh, top-down portfolio guidance coming their way. Uh, we know you're fools and fools love stocks, but uh, what we want to do is help members get a better understanding of how all of those stocks and our services work together with each other and what effect that has on an aggregate level. So incorporating that more uh, holistic total portfolio view uh, of investing. And one of the things you've started contributing to is these seven don'ts, but also five do's. We're getting to the five do's later on, but we have these seven don'ts. Tell us a little bit about the, the origin story of these and why we're looking at these now. Sure. So this effort with the, the do's and don'ts of investing really came about because uh, of some of the things that we were hearing from members and how they were investing in this very challenging environment. So uh, 2020 has been interesting for, from many different perspectives, um, but it has provided really a, a very unique backdrop from an investment standpoint because the market fell uh, so far so fast in the spring and then, and then bounced back just as quickly uh, it really provided the opportunity for for kind of a, a case study of investor behavior and how people respond to these elevated levels of volatility. So you really got to see uh, a swing between these extremes of uh, despair and uh, indulation in a, a short period of time. So based on what some members were telling us about how they were responding to this year's market and how they were investing as a result, um, we started to see some common themes emerge. And we really wanted to get out there with kind of a, a primer or, or a refresher on how we think fools should view stock investing and some of the, the basic foolish principles we think they should adhere to. Uh, and because we obviously don't know exactly what the market's going to do next. So right now we're kind of in that wait and see you know, anticipation mode. Uh, we wanted to take this opportunity to remind folks of, of what we think they should be focusing on right now. Great. All right. So let's get into it. I'm going to read each one. Amanda's going to give her thoughts. I'll add a few thoughts as well. So number one, don't buy fewer than 10 stocks. Yes. So this is really a question about, about diversification. Um, obviously, we're fools, so we believe in, in picking individual stocks. But when you only own a small handful of names, your portfolio is still pretty reliant on the fortunes of just a few companies, uh, especially if they happen to be in the same industry, which a, a lot of the foolish stock picks are. So owning at least 10, and personally, I would advocate for 15, 20 more stocks, really reduces that level of company-specific risk in a portfolio while still allowing you the chance to, to benefit from owning those stocks in the first place. And it's, it's not a bad idea to supplement that with some low-cost, broad-market, exchange-traded funds as well. Yeah, and I wrote an article for Stock Advisor earlier this year, basically answered the question of how many stocks you should own. And I did a, a, a very informal survey of other advisors of the fool, and, and most people said they're aiming for 20 and it, maybe in, at least 30. 
And the other way to think of it too is how much should you have in an individual company? If you only own 10 stocks, that's 10% of your portfolio riding on each company. Of course, they're going to move up and down. You could easily get to a point where one of those stocks becomes 20, 30, 40% of your portfolio. And for most people, that's more risk than they really should be taking. Absolutely. Let's go to number two. Don't aim for short-term gains. Sure. So I think this is probably one of the most difficult investing rules to stick to. It's, it's, it's very much human nature to be tuned into what the stock market's doing from day to day. And it's normal to feel um, a bit emotional when it comes to your money. And um, you know, if stocks fall and we have a really volatile, scary time like we did earlier this spring, it's, it's very understandable that investors are going to be focused on what's going on in the short run. Um, but you'll frankly drive yourself crazy doing that. And that focusing on the short run also leads investors to make some uh, very ill-timed, I guess, choices by selling or buying at the exact wrong time. So if you're too focused on what's happened in the past month or six months or even a year, that can lead to trying to chase performance where you're perpetually shifting money to uh, whatever stocks or asset classes have done the best uh, in recent history. And that's that's pretty reactive. So as, as hard as it is not to be swayed by short-term market movements, um, that's really what you need to do to be successful and to avoid making decisions at exactly the wrong time. It can be very tempting. And a lot of times we talk about this in terms of the market going down, right? Look, in the March, the market went down 34%. We're telling people don't focus on the short term. But there's the short term gains part two, right? A company that the Molly Fools long, well, not long recommended, recommended in the recent past is Zoom. Zoom is up 280% this year. And I'm sure there are many people out there saying, like, I should lock in these gains right now. Now, I'm not saying uh, Zoom is going to go up or down from here. But generally, the most successful investments in Motley Fool history have been ones that we have held on to for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, regardless of how well or how poorly they did in any given year. We talked about it earlier this year on the show about how because casinos were shut down, uh, people were getting bored and they decided to start picking up investing as if it was like gambling. And it is when you're doing short term trading, it is very much like gambling and you get that excitement and you get that thrill uh, when a stock shoots up and you like, yes, awesome. And, and it's such an adrenaline rush and so exciting. Whereas like long term investing, as we know at the fool is slow and steady it's not sexy or exciting, but it will pay off in the end if you have the patience to see it through. So it is. I think it is fascinating. The people who have picked up investing during this past year are doing it out of boredom, are doing it because they're a thrill seeker. They're looking to replace some sort of excitement in their life. And investing that we've found at The Fool, when done well, when done successfully, is not super sexy and exciting. It's exciting for us, but it's more long-term. It's exciting over 10-year periods, over decades. Yes. Although every now and then you get a good winner that you're excited about. I often think of it as like raising kids, right? Like raising your kids is a long-term prospect. And you're going to have days where it was just awesome. You did a great thing with your kids. Other times, maybe not so much. It's more work. But you got this long-term goal of eventually kicking them out of the house. I mean, setting them off on <laughs> and they're going to be successful or something like that. But anyways, uh, so with that said, so that's all about stocks and everyone knows we love stocks, but let's move on to number three. Don't invest all your savings in stocks. 
Yeah, and this point really has to do with risk tolerance or how much volatility can an investor handle and how they respond to short-term declines in the market. So as a general rule, um, any money that investors need in the next few years should be in cash. So that means everyone should have or, or at least work toward having an emergency fund to cover unexpected expenses. And then retirees should have enough in cash to cover the next you know, two to four years of living expenses. Um, and then beyond that, as a general rule, obviously, investors who are younger, have longer time horizons, greater risk tolerance, uh, can be primarily in stocks. So for them, something like 90, 95% in stocks may make sense. And then on the other end of the spectrum, someone who's retired, drawing down on their portfolio for living expenses, can't sleep at night when they lose money, um, they should be much less exposed to stocks. For that person, maybe something like even 50 to 60% stocks might be appropriate. Uh, it really depends on your time horizon, how much risk you can handle. Uh, and I know the, the really retirement model portfolios uh, have allocations along that risk spectrum as well. Yeah, and it's been a, it's been a tough one determining what's the best allocation nowadays. So for the vast majority of the last several years, and Amanda, you helped develop these, it was uh, if you're retired, 60% stocks within a decade of retirement, 75% stocks, and then more than a decade from retirement, 90% stocks, 10% out. But given the fact that when you have money out of the stock market, you usually have it in bonds, bonds historically returned 5 6 7%, that's an attractive return. You're not going to get that from bonds now. You're going to get like a half to maybe one, one and a half percent. So just recently in the rural retirement, we have I've moved the allocation for people who are retired to 75% stocks. But for many people, that's going to be too risky, way too risky. Um, so sticking with 60 or even 50% is better. I'm, I'm doing this change with lots of trepidation and, and emphasizing that people need that, ne that I call it income, income cushion of five years if you're retired out of the stock market. Historically, most bear markets have gone down and come back up, recovered within five years, so you should be okay. But we'll see. I hope that continues. Uh, I should also say that it's sort of a default with most of the other Motley Fool services is to have about 10% out of the stock market. I think that's something that Tom Gardner has said many times over in the past. All right, let's move on to number four. Don't borrow money to buy stocks. Yes, so this is buying on margin. Um, basically, this is a, a technique where your broker lends you money, charging you a certain rate of interest for that privilege, obviously, uh, which allows you to purchase more stocks with the, the proceeds from that loan. So basically, let's say you have $10,000 and you borrow another $10,000 at 5%, you now own uh, $20,000 worth of securities, which is great uh, if the stocks that you own go up in value and you make a larger profit. Um, but the reason margin is so dangerous and why we have this in here as a don't um, is because stocks obviously don't always go up, especially over the short run. And when that happens and you're on margin, your losses are then magnified. So just as a, a quick math example here, uh, let's assume that uh, instead of going up, a stock that you've purchased on margin falls by 10%. So your loss is not 10%, but then 25% because you've lost $2,000. You eventually need to pay back that $10,000 loan uh, and $500 in interest as well. So you're left with that uh, 7,500 on your original 10,000 investment, which is a 25% loss when the stock only fell by 10%. So it's it's really easy to see how investors can get into trouble very quickly using margin. And the problem there is if you if your stocks go down so much, your broker is basically going to say, 
you either have to put up more collateral or we are going to sell these stocks for you, which basically locks in that loss. You're selling at the worst possible time. All right, let's move on to the next one. Number five, don't buy stocks because they're under $5. Yes, these are what are called penny stocks, and they come with uh, their own, I guess, unique set of risks. So one issue with these types of investments is that they tend to trade on over-the-counter markets, not on on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange. So the requirements for financial transparency, corporate governance, that kind of thing, uh, they, they aren't quite as stringent. So investors may have less true insight into the actual value of the company. Um, and you can also have some issues with liquidity as well with penny stocks, which means it may be more difficult to buy or sell shares uh, at the market price. So what all that translates to is basically those these types of stocks tend to be a little bit higher risk. And a lot of that risk can be kind of hard to quantify. So investors may not really know what they're buying. So uh, that's why we recommend just avoiding that corner of the market, uh, especially since there are so many other great companies that we do have better insight into. Yeah. And by the way, that definition of $5 per share or lower is a penny stock comes from the SEC. Um, I know it sounds confusing to call a penny stock that is $5 or less, but that is from the SEC. And one of the big issues really is it's not the share price as much as the size of the company. These are often very small companies. As Amanda said, they're illiquid. They can be easy, easily manipulated. When you when you read about um, some story about how a stock price was uh, the old pump and dump scheme where a bunch of people on a message board said, oh, this company is going to come out with this new cure for cancer or something. The stock goes up and then it comes crashing down. Most of those happen with these small illiquid stocks because it's so easy for a group of people to get together pump up the price and then sell it to top and leaving the, the, the sort of the other folks holding the bag. Does that really still happen as much as it used to? Uh, I, I think so. Really? I think so. Yeah. And I don't, I, there's no really, there's no way to prevent it really. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I guess so. It, it's not something that like, I know that was a big thing in, in the early days of the Motley Fool, but I just don't hear about that so often as like a huge risk right now. And I think like share price, understanding the difference between like valuation and like an actual share price, I think is important for people, for for maybe some of our newer investors to understand. So would you guys like, maybe one of you could explain that a little bit about how as a newer investor, I could see someone being like, but look, I can buy 5,000 of this dollar share, you know, dollar priced stock versus I can't even get a share, a couple shares of Amazon for that. Um, so can you maybe talk a little bit just just to get a base level of understanding for maybe some of our newer investors about price versus valuation? Sure. So the price is obviously what um, the company sells for in the market, whether that's on the exchange or an over-the-counter market. Um, and in the case, uh, ideally, that would be similar to what the valuation is. But in cases like these, uh, you know, there's not necessarily that correlation. If you don't have that insight, um, it's harder for investors to make that that call on valuation. So the valuation is what a company's cash flows are worth in the future, um, which should have an effect on on the the stock price. But um, with that those lack of regulations, there's going to be a bigger disconnect there. So you really can't make a call uh, on a penny stock as you can for Amazon, who has much more widely available financials. They're much more transparent, things like that. 
Yeah, and I can yeah, see but- what you're saying, Allison, where you, you look at one company and it's selling for $500 per share, yeah. and another one is selling for $5 per share. And you must think, well, the $5 per share one must be a better value. I get to buy more of them. I can buy more of them. More shares. Right. But what it comes down to is not the number of shares that you own. It's the amount of money that you put into a company. Because every time you buy stock, you are buying a proportionate amount of that company. You are a legitimate part owner of that company. And the number of shares doesn't matter. It matters if you put in $10,000 in that company, what percentage of that company do you then own so that when it goes up, your investment goes up proportionately. And of course, now we can buy fractional shares. You wouldn't, you couldn't use, you, you used to like be priced as a new investor, you'd be totally priced out of some, a higher share price stock. Um, but now you can do fractional shares. You don't have that same problem. Yeah. But, but companies do understand it, right? Apple just announced a four for one stock split. So it, there's no question that people still look at these companies and think, oh, this, this share price is too high. I'm not going to buy into it. Right, uh, and, and, right. you know, when you look at a share of Berkshire Hathaway A, they, they had to do something different because, you know, b- before there were stock slices and fractional shares, no one could afford to buy a single share of Berkshire Hathaway. So at some point, companies do have to do it. Right. Because um, like, it's like six figures, right? Oh, yeah. It's well over 100,000. I haven't yeah, checked lately. Yeah, for share. Bananas. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's move on to number six. Don't expect all your stocks to go up. Uh, yeah. So it's it's important to note that even really good stock pickers, great stock pickers will make some bad calls now and then. Uh, and not every stock that you own will make money. And not all of the stocks that you own will make as much money as you think that they should. But it's important to focus on what you got right rather than on what you got wrong and not beat yourself up for owning the the, the occasional dud. Uh, David Gardner said before to aim for about 60% accuracy, where six out of the 10 stocks you own are beating the market. So that just means you have to be comfortable losing some time because when you do win, uh, those wins will more than make up for the losses. For another article I wrote for Stock Advisor earlier this year, um, I, I did an analysis of the success rate of those stocks. And again, this is earlier in the year, so it's changed since then. But of all the stocks that Stock Advisor has picked since I think it came out in 2001, so it's been around for a while, 30% of the picks have lost money and 12% had lost 50% or more. So, And when you look at the whole record, Stock Advisor has crushed the market. So to get those market-crushing returns, you're just going to have to put up with some real duds. All right, let's move on to the final item here. Don't use options in your first year of investing. So options are basically uh, an investment tool or vehicle that gives the buyer the right to buy or sell a certain stock at a certain price at a certain date in the future. So, for example, you could buy a call option, which would give you the right to buy 100 shares of stock X at $50 a share in six months. Uh, The idea here is that if you're bullish on stock X and think it'll be trading at $60 in six months, uh, you could make a profit. And then if at the end of that six-month period, StockX is trading um, above that, you would exercise that option. If it were trading below that, say at 45, uh, you wouldn't exercise the option. It would expire. Conversely, you can buy a a put option that gives you the right to sell StockX at a certain date for a certain price, which you would want to do if you're a little bit more bearish on that stock. So 
Um, options can be useful for a couple different purposes. They can hedge against risk. So if you own a lot of a certain stock and wanted to protect against market declines, you can do that with options. If you wanted to generate income, you can write or sell options yourself. Uh, and of course, uh, the place where we really get into trouble is when options are used purely as speculative investments, which is why we recommend uh, avoiding options as a beginning investor. Yeah, when I first came to the Fool in 1999, we were all against options. Like we we said that no one should ever have options, partially because most options are very short-term instruments, and we don't believe in trying to make short-term bets on anything. Uh, but also, depending on what you do. It can be extreme leverage in, in the sense that if, if your bet is right, you make a lot of money, but if it goes the other way, you can lose a lot of money. And, and depending on the strategy, you could, live in, you could lose almost an unlimited amount of money. Um, that said, that changed a few years later, and I think that mostly came to Jeff Fisher, who ran our options service and now works on the regulated side, managing money for The Motley Fool. Um, so we do believe, like, as Amanda said, hedging is one thing, um, covered calls, is something else that we write about every once in a while as a very conservative strategy, conservative way to produce income. Um, so in the right situation, I think that's fine. But I think it fundamentally comes down to, it's generally a short-term bet and it's not a set it and forget it type of thing. I mean, I've, I have come across people who, who start an option strategy and then just sort of forget about it and then it kind of went against them and, and they were like, oh my goodness, I, I totally forgot. It's not the type of thing where you can buy a good company and then not look at it, you know, maybe once, you can look at it once a year and you're fine. Options aren't like that. It takes a lot more time and effort. Yeah, I feel like, like my, my husband loves options. He loves them. And, uh, but he does them in a very Jeff Fisher kind of safe way using them. Uh and he, he absolutely loves them. And I would call it more almost like a hobby, like something you do because you actually enjoy doing it. Because if you don't, don't enjoy doing it, to your point, bro, it's a job. And it could, it could go sideways pretty easily if you don't understand what you're getting into. So um, I appreciate the idea of, that we want people to really know what they're getting into before they get into options. But they are a really great tool if it's something that you enjoy doing and, and love squeezing squeezing that like my husband just loves squeezing a little bit extra more money out of these little corners with options and stuff and he, and he enjoys it which is great but i wouldn't want to do it I'm like, just give me some shares of something and i'll sit on them for a decade yeah i have i have a cousin who does the same thing i mean he works from home I mean, of course we're all working from home but he's always been working from home and when he's not working he's looking at the options market he says he does very well i have yeah. every reason to believe him but it definitely takes some time yeah. Every time I ever hear Jeff Fisher speak, I think, wow, options are awesome. These things are so cool. And as soon as he stops speaking, I'm like, what's an option? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm like, okay, so if I think the stock is going to go up, then I want it to, and then everything falls apart. But I think, I mean, I would, I think because of the joy that my husband gets out of it, then just the intellectual stimulation, even if he was just break even, I'd be like, that's okay. That's okay. But supposedly he does well too. So, all right, bro. What's the last one? That's it. That was the last one. Oh, that was one. it. Okay. Yes. So those are what you should not do. In our next episode, we're going to cover five things that we think foolish investors should do. So tune in next week. Well, that's the show. It's edited successfully every week by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Alison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.